Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Here with us today is Tony-winning set designer Beowulf Borat. Beowulf has worked on Act One, Bernhard Hamlet, Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, and the upcoming musical Flying Over Sunset. Beowulf, thank you for being here. Glad to be. So let's start at the beginning. How did you first get interested in theater? Um, I got interested in theater, I think, when I was probably in elementary school. I was in some plays then. And really, when I was in junior high and high school, uh, I kind of fell in love with it. I started doing the school plays. And I, I always liked to draw. I always, I, my parents would read me books, even as a very little kid, and I would draw pictures of scenes from the books. Um, and uh, so I always liked visual storytelling. And when I was a junior in high school, I worked as an intern one summer at a summer theater in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. And uh, it was a little, it was a little college that, that ran a summer theater program. And I was an intern and I got to act in very small parts in some of the shows. And I helped build the set and whatever. I did, did, did everything. But it was the first time I ever actually met a set designer. There was a man there who taught set design at the college and he designed the sets for the summer theater and, and, and showed us how to build them. And it was the first time I understood that it was a job that you could do. Um, because I think before that, whoever directed my school play would just make a set as well. There wasn't really a set designer. Um, and it, it was eye-opening for me. I think that's probably when I decided I wanted to do this. I, you know, I went to college. I still thought maybe I would do some other things. I thought maybe I would teach. But by the time I got out of college, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a set designer and, and went to graduate school for that. And, and that put me on the path. So who were some of your mentors as set designers? I mean, I guess the, the man, Jerry Hansen, uh, who taught at Gettysburg College in, in the 1980s, would be sort of the first one, um, was important. And then the man who ran that summer theater was a guy named Emil Schmidt. They both died since. Uh, but he hired me back when I was in college to, to be the set designer for him a couple of summers there um, and gave me my first jobs as a set designer. So those were, those were important. Um, I had some really good college professors who taught me about design, a, a man named Tad Gessick, who has also passed away, um, and uh, a man named William Miller uh, were my two set design teachers in college, and they, they both encouraged me to do it. They both told me to come to New York and to go to New York University, um, and, and that was all crucial. And then at NYU, there, you know, there are a lot of working professionals who teach there, and so that was a great opportunity to work with people and, and see what it looked like when you were really making a living doing theater, uh, both to see, you know, sort of their successes, but also how tired they were and how hard it was to do it. Um, and I, a, a lot of really wonderful teachers there who, who kind of opened up the business to me. So did you always know it was going to be set design or did you think maybe costume design or lighting design? Um, when I started out, I did a little bit of everything. Um, in fact, I, I, I was a 
set and costume design major at NYU. And a lot of my first designs in college were costume designs. Um, I think part of that was they, you know, they figured they could let a student design the costumes and the worst that would happen is the costumes would be ugly. If they let me design the set and it fell down, it might kill somebody. So it took a little longer sometimes to be allowed to do the set. And interestingly, even when I started working professionally in New York, my first job was a costume design, um, just by chance. Um, I used to do both a lot. And as my career developed, what I realized was a couple of things. I, when I was doing small off-Broadway shows, I think it's harder to be a costume designer. Um, and I just got sick of going to one too many, you know, TJ Maxx or Filene's Basement or whatever, some kind of cheap store to try to, you know, put together a costume design for $1,000. Um, and somehow I, I, with small budgets, I was able to do it more satisfactorily with scenery. And frankly, my skills were just better as a set designer. I was a better carpenter than I was a stitcher. And so I could kind of express myself with, with flats and paint and those things more effectively than with costumes. And it led me to stop doing costumes as much. I also started meeting some really wonderful costume designers. And I thought, well, you can do this better than I can. I'd rather do the set and see what you're going to do with the costumes than have to put people in my costumes, which won't be as good. So how do you usually get a show as a set designer? Really, it's, I would say 85% of the time the director calls me up and says, I'm doing a show, I want you to, to design it for me. Um, it, I don't think I've ever applied for a job in the way that people apply for jobs in the world. I've never filled out a form saying I would like this job. Um, but I do spend a huge amount of time trying to get my next job. Um, it's not always a specific job, but I, you know, the best piece of advice I got when I started a professional career doing this was that if you want to work in the theater, you have to be kind of more aggressive and, and a bigger personality and, and pushier than you would be in everyday life. That things that are kind of rude in everyday life are just kind of normal in the theater. Theater people are kind of hyperbolic, they're big personalities, they're used to expressing things in big ways. And if you just act like Mr. Polite so-and-so walking down the street, you're not going to get noticed. And so you have to, you have to push people a little bit. Um, when I started doing this, I wasn't that guy. I didn't know how to do it. And I had to teach myself to kind of schmooze and go to cocktail parties and chit-chat and chase down jobs. Um, and it's, it's very important if you want a career doing this. I, maybe there are people who are successful without doing that, but I, I've never met them. Um, and... So I spend a lot of time, uh, you know, either staying in touch with the directors that I do work with and say, hey, what are you doing next? I'd like to work with you again, or reaching out to new directors who I admire. If I see something that I really like, I'll try to, you know, I'll write a letter to people or, uh, you know, Facebook is great for that because you can find anybody there and, and just drop them a note and say, hey, we've never met, but I really liked what you did on whatever. Um, can we have coffee sometime? And, and I meet them that way. And once I've met people, I, I stay after them. I drop them a letter, I drop them a note, I'll send them a postcard, say I'm doing this show, I'd like you to come see it. Um, so in that sense, I spend a lot of time applying for jobs, but it's, it's kind of a, a more general applying for jobs and really getting in touch with the people whose work I admire and, and, and I think is interesting that I would like to work with. So you were talking about getting noticed. Is there a certain point or milestone in your career where you feel you really started getting noticed in a different way? Yeah, there are a few things that happened, kind of lucky breaks maybe, um, and, and I can sort of hit all of them. Uh, you know, the first thing that happened was I, 
while I was still at NYU, I started working for a little theater in the Bronx called the Belmont Italian American Playhouse in the Little Italy section up in the Bronx. Um, they don't exist anymore, but we did a lot of really good shows there when I was quite young, you know, small shows. And one of them got uh, picked up by a commercial producer who said, this is great. I want to bring it to an off-Broadway theater. And we did it at the Cherry Lane Theater. And the, uh, the New York Times didn't like it, gave us a terrible review, and the show closed a couple weeks later, and we were all devastated and heartbroken. But it's, it did mean I had done a commercial off-Broadway show just out of graduate school. And so I could put that on my resume and I could start going to, you know, slightly bigger theaters and saying, hey, I'd like to work for you. I did this show. Um, and here's the picture of the set. And, you know, it, uh, give me an off-Broadway job. Um, I think probably the most important lucky break for me, though, was I, when I graduated from NYU, they used to do something called the clam bake, where all of the all of the designers from every graduate school around the country would come to New York and for three days you would get a table at Lincoln Center in the library and you'd put out your best work and they would invite everybody, directors and designers and producers to come and just look at it and sort of meet the new kids who were coming out of school. Um, and it, it has, they don't do it anymore. It's broken into sort of different schools do different versions of it, but it's a shame that this big, this big thing that everybody used to come to doesn't happen anymore. At that clam bake, I met Hal Prince. Um, I, I was just standing there. It was probably the third day of it. I was tired. Lots of people had come through. And suddenly I looked up and there was Hal Prince looking at a model that I had made. And I, it was a model with a turntable in it. And I, I had electrified it. So if you pushed a button, the turntable moved. And I saw him pushing the button and playing with it and clearly delighted with it. Um, and we talked for a couple minutes and he was polite and then he went away. But a few days later, I got a letter from him saying it was very nice to meet you and, you know, good luck with your career. Uh, and I think that was all it said. And I, I found out years after the fact, he sent those to a lot of people. I think he would go through the, the clam bake and anyone whose work he liked at all, he would send them an encouraging letter just to try to be nice. Um, so he, you know, he said he sent it to about a third of the people there. Um, but because as I said, I, I chase after directors, as soon as he had sort of opened that door for me, I started sending him letters. Um, and I, if I sent him a letter right away saying, thank you, it was nice to meet you. I hope I'll meet you again someday. And every time I did a show, I would send him a postcard saying, hey, I designed this tiny little off-Broadway show you've never heard of, but come see it. Um, and I did that for years and years and years. And, and every so often he would write me a letter back. He was a real gentleman. He was very polite that way. And, and he also, you know, he was a quite successful director. So he had an office full of secretaries who could help him do that kind of thing. Um, but uh, about five years later, his daughter, Daisy Prince, called me up and she said, I'm directing a musical called The Last Five Years by a, a young composer named Jason Robert Brown. And we're looking for a designer. And my dad says, you're good. Can, I, can you show me your work? And, and so I had an interview with her and she hired me. And I think part of the reason I got the job is because I could do the set and the costumes because I was doing both things still. And she was gonna do the show in Chicago and she was only allowed to bring one designer from New York. So she thought if she hired me, I could do the set and the costumes. And I think she liked my work too, I don't mean that, but it, it, being able to do both things was a benefit. Um, and I did that show uh, and it, it was a big hit in Chicago and some commercial producers picked it up and brought it to New York and it ran in New York. And again, the New York Times didn't like it and it didn't last very long and we were all heartbroken and miserable. But it, uh, it was a big show and 
and Daisy was Hal's daughter. Jason had won a Tony Award for Parade a few years earlier that Hal directed. So people knew who they were. They didn't know who I was, but they knew who those guys were. And they came to see the show. And luckily, I'd done a pretty good job on the set. Um, I got nominated for some awards. And, but people saw it and they remembered it. And, you know, and they remembered my weird name, I think. People started to realize that, you know, this guy's a set designer. And the name is odd enough that it sticks with you. Um, and that, I think, really began to kind of put me on the map. That people started to know who I was. Um, and a couple of years after that, uh, I had done um, a, a musical called the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee for a little summer stuff theater called Barrington Stage. We, we did it for very little money in high school cafeteria. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a great production, honestly. I, Bill Finn hated the guy who was directing it. It was kind of a rough tech. Um, and after it was done, I thought, well, I'll never hear of that show again. But about a month later, I got a phone call from James Lapine's assistant saying they fired the original director. James was going to take over the show and he'd like to meet with you. He saw the production and he liked your set. And so I went in to interview with James Lapine for the first time, who I'd never met before. Um, and he was nice, and we talked, and I showed him some of what I did. Um, and he asked me how I got hired to do the last five years. And I said, oh, well, Hal, I knew Hal, and he liked my work, and he recommended me to Daisy. And I saw that that impressed him as well. But I think a combination of having Hal's stamp of approval, and, and I think he liked the set I had done at Barrington Stage, and James is a supportive guy. He likes to give young people a, a chance. And so he, he hired me to do the show off-Broadway. And then for once, the New York Times did like it. It got a great review, like an amazing review. And we had a commercial producer named David Stone who'd done Wicked, and he moved the show to Broadway right away. Um, and again, the New York Times liked it. We got a great review. Everyone was happy. And the show was a big hit for a while. It ran for about three years on Broadway, and we did a national tour, and we did it all over the country. Um, and and that was the thing that really opened a lot of doors for me. I, you know, it seems obvious, but you have a hit show on Broadway as a designer and, and it gets you a lot of work and you get very busy all of a sudden. And right as that was happening, Hal Prince himself finally called and said, hey, I've got a musical for you. And a couple of years later, I was doing love music on Broadway with Hal Prince. Um, and I've worked with Lapine ever since. So it, those were the sort of, there's a thousand little things that come together to kind of make a career happen. but. Those are sort of the the signposts, I think, that I, I feel like if those things hadn't happened, my life would have turned very differently. You were talking about the New York Times and reviews. Who do you feel is qualified to judge a set design? And also, what would you define as sort of a good set design? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I mean, the short answer is anybody's qualified to judge a set design. It's, you know, it's, the downside of that is I don't necessarily think the person reviewing for the New York Times is any more qualified than any other audience member. I mean, in theory, you know, they see more theater and in theory they're educated, but you know, it's, it's a story. And so any audience member will have a reaction to what they're seeing and that reaction is valid. That's their reaction to it. Either they like it or they don't like it. You know, it's, and it's, that's not a judgment, you know, I could design a set I think is the most wonderful set and somebody just doesn't like it. You know, I don't like tomatoes. I don't think that makes me morally unfit. I just don't like them. If you do like them, that's great. Um, but so that's a hard one that I think, I think, you know, anybody has a right to have any opinion about a piece of art. What, what I will say, I think a lot of 
people, artists working in the theater find frustrating is, and you know, and I just alluded to it, the New York Times comes and gives their review and it's, you know, it's, it's whoever it is from the Times has an opinion about it. And a lot of people see that and it gets held up as this is the definitive answer to whether this is a good or bad piece of art. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't always define the fate of something. Sometimes things get a bad review and they become very successful or things get a wonderful review and, and they're not successful. So it, it is not the ultimate arbiter, but as an artist, when you've been working on a show for a year or five years or 10 years, and in one evening, somebody walks in and says, well, this is garbage, that hurts. <laughs> and, and that's where I think you get a lot of people saying, well, so-and-so is not qualified to judge it. Um, but by the same token, I would challenge any artist to say who they think the qualified reviewer is. If somebody likes you, you like them. And if they don't like you, it gets you mad. Um, and that's just human nature. Uh, in The Seagull, the Chekhov play, Trevoran, who's the playwright character, says at one point, when I get good reviews, it makes me happy. And when I get bad reviews, I'm out of sorts for three days. And, you know, that's, we're now getting into reviews, but I, you know, my take on it is I, I read all of them and, and if they like me, that's nice. And if they don't like me, then that, that's their right. And I'm sorry that it's in print and a lot of people saw that they didn't like me. Um, in terms of what makes a good set design, that's a tough one. Um, I, I'm writing a book about that right now, literally. Um, and, you know, it's I'm 350 pages in and I don't know that I've answered the question for myself. But, you know, ultimately what a set design is trying to do is to help tell the story. Um, you have a play or a musical, you have, um, and it's a piece of literature that actors are going to present to an audience. And, and that's theater. That's all you need. You need words and you need a person to present those words and you need someone to listen. And then you've got theater. And you don't need a set for any of that. But what a set can do, I think, and I, I believe strongly because it's what I've made my life doing, is it can enhance that. Um, it's, it's sort of some added frosting that makes it more interesting or more exciting. And at its best, what I try to do is I figure out what the theme of the play is. I talk with the director and we talk for often a long time about this. What is the play about? What's the mood we're trying to create? How do we want to tell the story? What's the best way to tell this story so the audience gets it? But thematically, what, what point are we trying to make with it? Um, and how can the set as a piece of sculpture, as a piece of art, help um, illuminate that or, or sort of point up the themes we're trying to make important? That, that's what interests me about sets design and what I really try to do. Um, and I, I'm trying to create a, a visual thing, a sculpture or a, or a picture, an image, visual image that will change probably through the course of the show and help tell you the story and tell you what the story is about um, at, at its best. What's your opinion on the set sort of becoming the star of the show? Do you think that's not its job or? It's not its job. It's if, you know, there, there can be a moment in the show where the, the set can be the star for, you know, for 30 seconds, maybe you do an effect that's exciting. And as long as that helps tell the story, that's great. Um, you know, Phantom of the Opera got very, speaking of Hal Prince, got very famous for that chandelier that fell from the sky. Um, and that's what everybody knew about it. And, uh, and that's fine. That's not a set stealing the show. That is a dramatic moment, the part of the show where the Phantom is trying to kill somebody on stage and, and scare them. And the set is helping tell that story. Um, but if the set gets in the way of the story and just becomes kind of flashy in its own right, then that's maybe a problem. Um, I think 
if you've got a really good play that's well directed, there's no way the set's going to become the star of the show. If the set becomes the star of the show, maybe it means the play isn't good enough or it's not directed well enough and the set's the only interesting thing there. Um, but you know, the set is ultimately, it is just a thing. It's a piece of sculpture. And even if it's got flashing lights on it and it moves and it does whatever, that's not going to be more interesting than a person telling you a really good story, um, as long as you've got a good person telling you a good story. But, um, but you know, by the same token, you don't want the set to get in the way of that person telling the good story. You, a set can, can, this I do believe, a set that is badly designed can take an otherwise good story and make it bad. Um, if the set starts to get in the way of it, if, it, if the actors have to struggle in a way that doesn't help them tell the story, um, if, uh, you know, sometimes it's as simple as the scene changes take too long, that it starts to, to destroy the rhythm of the show. This, maybe the show wants to move along really quickly and every set change takes 20 seconds instead of 10 seconds. Then that starts to destroy the pace of the show. And in that sense, the set can actually begin to destroy the story. Um, and that's not good. And that's, that's, that's maybe the most important thing to do as a designer is as you are, as you are telling the story, not to get in the way of it. Um, but um, I would say those, those rare cases where people say, well, the set was the only good thing about the show is, is more of a, a problem with the show than, than a problem with the set. So when you design a solo show, as you've done a few times with the new one and the two and only, do you find that the set becomes more important when it's sort of the only other thing on stage? You know, what's interesting is I, I don't know if it becomes more important. I think it maybe is even less important, but it does mean that I try to pull the set back a little bit. Um, it, what the set is trying to do is, is, is different, frankly. Um, in the new one, for example, you know, Mike Birbiglia is a very compelling performer, but most of the shows I had done with him were done in small spaces. And when we put that show on Broadway, one of the things we really talked about, mostly with the director, but some with Mike as well, is how as the set designer do I make this one man standing, one little man in this big theater feel like the most important thing that's there? Because we're not on film, we're never gonna get a close up. Um, and you know, you can turn off all the lights and just put a spotlight on him and then you can't see anything else. But what we actually chose to do with the new one is I used every design trick that I knew compositionally to make the space feel smaller and tighter around Mike so that Mike was bigger in proportion to the space around him. Um, I, I built a full proscenium that uh, made the proscenium of the court theater eight feet narrower than it actually was. Um, I, we did a kind of a forced perspective thing with some lights both above and on the sides that angled in and so that the, what looked like the backdrop suddenly became quite small um, because we were angling in everything around it to make a human figure bigger within that space. And it's something I think about on every show because, you know, as I say, you want the actor to be the most important thing on stage at almost any moment. And uh, part of what the set design does is, is helps that. The lighting design does a lot of it too. The cost, everything is sort of working together to do that. But what I can do proportionally is make sure a human being feels important within the space. And it doesn't mean big necessarily. Sometimes to help the storytelling, you want a person to feel small. Um, I did a, a play of Therese Rakan a few years ago on Broadway with Kira Knightley. And we actually started the show making the space as big as we could possibly make it. We, we put all the lights and all of the masking up about 10 feet higher than you normally would. We made everything as wide open and as vast as it could so that she felt little in the space. And then when it changed about a third of the way through the show and suddenly this house flew in around her and it was very tight and claustrophobic, she felt much bigger in the space, but she felt trapped by it. So 
sometimes you're kind of manipulating space around a human being that way. Um, but in a one person show, I think that that is maybe the most important thing, or that's what, I, in the ones that I've done, that's been the thing that I try to do. I, I want something that's gonna thematically support the play in, in the same way I would with any play, but knowing that, that it has to, to frame and, and sort of uh, pop out a single person in, in a different way and in, you know, without song and dance or running around or sword fights or whatever you get in, in, in plays with multiple characters. So you have done a lot of shows with large sets and fancy sets, and you've also done a lot with sort of spare sets. So obviously the content will dictate which one of those is appropriate, but if you had your choice, which do you prefer designing? I guess there is something fun about doing big fancy sets. Um, you know, when I, I did uh, act one at Lincoln Center and it was an enormous set um, and it was, it was exciting just because it was so novel. I'd never done anything like that before. I'd never seen anything like that before. And so it was exciting because we were figuring out something new that we thought was gonna be a good way to tell the story, but we didn't even know. It was kind of an experiment and it was successful in the end, but it could have not been. And there's an exhilaration and excitement to trying something that you really don't know if it's going to work and then having it work. Um, I will say that I approach almost every set trying to make it as simple as I can. Um, you know, as I said, it, it is, it is a, an actor telling a story. And so what I usually try to do, and, you know, aside from the theme and the kind of the bigger images that I've talked about, um, when I read a scene in a play, I think what what is the least I can put on stage to have the audience know that we are where we are? We're in the kitchen in this scene. So can I get away with just a kitchen table and a chair? Or do I need a stove also? But is that enough? And sometimes you need more than that. And sometimes you don't. But um, I try to figure out what is the, the least I can put on stage to make clear to the audience what they're seeing. And that leads to more spare, simple sets. The other thing it does, and this is something that I, I really learned from Hal Prince, it was really his mantra, is he always tried to put very little on stage. So he would always say, leave a lot of black space, leave a lot of space for the audience's imagination. Because if you put a chair on stage and you let them imagine the rest of the room, they're going to imagine the room that's right for them. And it makes them complicit with you. It makes them participate in the storytelling. And it makes them a more active participant in the storytelling. And people like it. Um, and I, that really has become a touchstone to me. It, it, it's also what theater does well. Um, film is a very literal art form most of the time, and you're seeing, you know, realism, reality on stage. Even if it's if it's you know a science fiction movie where it's not a reality we recognize, it's still a reality. It's not an abstraction. Um, theater can do abstraction very well. It can do kind of infinite empty space where you have two people standing literally right next to each other, but you believe one of them's in Russia and one of them's in America just because they're reading a letter or whatever. Theater does that really well. Um, and so embracing imagination and embracing the abstraction that theater allows for um, is the great strength of it. Uh, I find whenever we try on stage to kind of do something that movies do well, we don't do it very well. As it gets back to what I was saying, that theater, I think, is basically a literary form. It is basically about words being presented, um, but, you know, with, with some visual bells and whistles around them. Well, one thing that's happening with theater and theater design is that there are a lot more projections. And I know you've worked on some shows with projections, like Be More Chill and Sunday in the Park with George. 
So as a set designer, how do you sort of balance those two things? You know, the reason there are more projections is, is economic, basically, that uh, with digital technology, projectors have gotten cheaper and more powerful. And so whereas theater did not used to be able to afford a lot of projectors, all of a sudden every show can afford one. And so we're using them more. Um, and they're a very powerful tool. I, you know, I, my flippant answer is I hate projections, um, but, uh, but I don't. I think when they're used well, they can be very powerful and very theatrical. And when they're used badly, they're just a mess and I hate them. Um, and I think there is a lot of bad projection design. It, it's very easy to be literal with it. Um, and this is my big ax to grind as a set designer. I think if I put a projection up that is just, you know, a, a picture of New York City, um, that's sort of the same as me doing a painted backdrop of New York City. It's a two-dimensional thing that looks like New York, and I'm asking the audience to accept it as such. And it, it feels old-fashioned and, and kind of uninteresting to me. Um, when projections manage to become more kind of emotional, or it, or it feels like it is, it is the thought of a character existing on stage, then they become very exciting to me. Um, I think to some degree in the production of Sunday in the Park that I did, but, but even more so in, there was a revival in the 2000s of Sunday in the Park with George that Sam Buttrock directed. It was very video driven and it was wonderful. I, it's one of my favorite projection shows ever um, because it, it began to feel like you were watching George Surratt think and the projections were just his mind working and you were seeing it. Um, and I thought it was incredibly effective and, and really moving. Um, but when the same thing is, is just, oh, you know, we're in the street now, so let's put up a picture of the street. And now we've gone to the country, so let's put up a picture of the country. And now we're at a gas station, so we'll have a slide of a gas station. That, that is boring to me um, and, and, and not theatrical. That, that is what I was saying about theater just kind of mimicking movies and not mimicking them very well. Um, and there's a lot of shows that do it and in quite sophisticated ways. You know, people make these sort of whole like digital worlds that you can manipulate behind on a screen behind the actors and you see them walking down the street and the street's moving and it's, it's, it's time consuming and difficult to make those things. And I have yet to see one that I thought was theatrically very interesting. Um, another problem with it to my mind is you're, when there's a TV set on in a room, it's hard to tear your eyes off it. It's a very compelling thing to look at. When you put an actor on stage and a giant TV set behind them with a moving image on it, it's very compelling and it's hard not to look at it. And it tends to make the human actor feel small or kind of disappear. Um, and you know, projection designers are aware of this and they, they do a lot to try to make that not happen. They try to make the image not move too much. They try to make it not too bright and, and so on. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I find it very, very easy for projections to overwhelm uh, actors on stage in a way that really, really hurts the show. And, and it, that, that I find frustrating and just not theatrical. So there's plenty of very successful professionals who disagree with me about everything I've just said. Um, and it's an argument that I have a lot uh, as we work on shows. But it's, it's important to me that projections, if they're going to get big and flashy, become more kind of emotional and more thematic and less literal. Um, and, and that you use them in a way that they don't, don't diminish the actors. So when you're designing a show that's set very clearly in a different era, like Chaplin or Bernhard Hamlet or On the Town, what is your research process like? Um, 
I do some research, I guess. I, you know, I, I, at this point, I basically go online and start, uh, you know, just Googling things. And I, you know, there's Pinterest is a kind of a great search engine for that kind of thing because it, however their algorithm works, you like put in one thing and it leads you to other interesting things. So very quickly, I can do a lot of research um, just to find some images to see what things look like. You know, I've, I've been doing this for a long time. I've studied visual history and period history. So I, I have a kind of a general sense of, you know, it's said in the 1940s, this is the world we're talking about. This is said in the 1890s, this is the world we're talking about. You know, when I did Bernhard Hamlet, I read a biography of Sarah Bernhardt and learned a bit about her. I learned that her theater was the first theater in Paris to have electric lights um, on it. And she famously had, I don't know, 10,000 electric light bulbs in the front of her theater. And so in the set, we put electric light bulbs. Even though it was kind of an old period play, we got those old Edison bulbs with the visible filaments. And I discussed it with Bradley King, the lighting designer, and we found places to put these electric light bulbs all over the set both because it was, it was kind of exciting and it was a play about show business, but it was also, in fact, historically correct. Um, I, you know, I don't think Sarah Bernhardt had light bulbs on her proscenium the way we did it, but her theater was an electrified theater. And so it felt interesting to, to kind of point that out, that she was a, a very kind of modern woman for her day. She was really one of the first international superstars uh, in a you know, Beyonce kind of way. Um, um, but that's really, that's, that's where I start. I think it is, um, you know, my father is a historian, your grandfather's a historian, that's how we know each other. And so I, I take the historical research seriously and I try to find out to the best of our knowledge, what would the correct thing be? And then if the correct thing, you know, whatever it is, if the right chair that Sarah Bernhardt had or the right dressing room, whatever it is, if, if that is interesting on stage and helps me tell the story of the play, then I'll use it. And if it doesn't seem interesting on stage and doesn't help me tell the story of the play, then I don't care that it's historically correct and I get rid of it. Um, there's nothing worse than seeing something that looks clumsy and clunky on stage and having the designer say, well, that's what it really was. And my response is always, well, I don't care. I'm an artist. I'm not an anthropologist. And I'm trying to tell a story. I'm not trying to do a historical document. Um, so it's you want to be aware of it. And any place that I can be historically accurate, I will be. But if it is better storytelling not to be historically accurate, then I'm also happy to do that. Do you find you prefer designing shows like that or shows that are very much set now, like Be More Chill? I like all of it, honestly. I don't know that I have a preference. Um, uh, you know, I like shows that, that touch my heart somehow um, and, or that I, you know, I, I sort of recognize the characters and understand them. But, most shows I can find my way into that way. Um, it's, it's one of the exciting things about a career doing this is I do so many shows and everyone is kind of a, an opportunity to learn something new. Um, you know, I, I didn't really know anything about Sarah Bernhardt. I didn't even know she was French when I got hired to do that show. I thought she was English. Um, and so I learned all about, you know, French theater in the late 1890s, which was interesting to me. Um, I did a musical a few years ago called The Little Dancer about Edward Degas and the, the girl that he sculpted for the famous statue. Um, and Susan Stroman hired me for that two and a half years before we did the first production at the Kennedy Center. And it gave me a long time to research it. I read a lot of books about Degas. I learned about his painting style. I was working all over the world in those days. So I got to go to museums in Russia and France and London and see his original paintings. I went and wandered around Paris to see where he lived and where this girl lived. Um, and it was, it helped me design a better set, but it was also just interesting. It helped me become a better artist because I learned things about how Degas worked as a painter 
and how he composed images that, that I didn't know before. And it helped me as a set designer to learn how to compose images better. So in a weird way, it was like I got a, a painting lesson from Degas by working on this music. Almost any show I do, whether it's modern or period or whatever it is, it's gonna open up some new, new horizons to me. I'm gonna learn something new by doing it because it almost always, whatever the subject is, even if I know something about it, there's more to learn. So next I'd like to ask you about a few specific shows and sets that you've done. You worked on Fiddler yeah. in the original production downtown. So that must have been a unique challenge because it's not a traditional theater and it's in Times Square, instead it's in a museum. So how do you make people realize that it's inside the world of the theater, even though it was in a museum? Um, you know, that's an interesting one. I had never done Fiddler on the Roof before. Um, it was tricky to figure out how to do that production because, you know, there's a very famous original production of Fiddler on the Roof that I know well with a, with a great set by Boris Aronson that kind of defined the show to me. And once we were going to do the show in, in Yiddish and down at the museum, um, it wasn't clear to us how to do it. We knew it had to be quite simple because it wasn't a real theater and there was no backstage and we couldn't fly things in and out. So the set had to be simple and that theater doesn't have a lot of money. So those things meant the set had to be simple. We knew that. Um, and it seemed interesting to do this kind of famous story, this famous Jewish story at a museum that is a Holocaust Remembrance Museum and, and also a story that ends with them coming to America done at a museum that where you can see the Statue of Liberty when you walk out of the theater. So all of those seem kind of interesting as a, as a frame for the play. And I do a bunch of different ideas of what it might be as, as I kind of talk with Joel Gray and the other designers about how to do it. But one day Joel said to me, well, maybe you should think of it as a political rally, not as a play. Um, and that kind of cracked it open for me. Suddenly I thought, oh, that's good. If this is like a political, if this is a political rally that somehow becomes people telling the story of Fiddler on the Roof, then I don't need any real, I don't need anything that's Russian. I don't need any, anything that sort of tells you that you're in Russia in the 1870s, whenever that play takes place. Um, and instead, maybe we do big placards with writing on them, uh, you know, the way you would have at a, at, a, at a political rally. And there's just a table and chairs on stage, like, like you're gonna have a bunch of political speakers come. And I, I did a sketch that took just sort of brown paper and put it up and wrote a couple things in, in, uh, in Hebrew on it, in Hebrew letters, um, and put a table and chairs there. And I said to Joel, this table and chairs can be the bar, it can be the house, it can be everything. If it's the top of the show, we'll pile all the chairs up on top of the table and we'll put a fiddler standing on top of that playing the violin. And then you'll know that that's the fiddler on the roof. It's, it's a famous story. So people know what's happening. You don't actually have to provide the roof. You have a person standing on a pile of things fiddling. They're going to get it. They're going to get that that's the roof and that we're doing this kind of simple theatrical storytelling. Um, and what, I don't even know how to describe how it all came together. That was the, that was the genesis of the set. But the sort of power that that production seemed to have, I think, caught us all off guard. Something about translating it into Yiddish made it feel more authentic, even though it was it was not a Yiddish, Yiddish I mean, it's Yiddish based on some Yiddish stories, but it was written in America in the 1960s um, by a bunch of English speakers. Um, and, but somehow, slightly distancing it from, from 
people who don't speak Yiddish by putting it in another language actually made it more poignant and, and feel more authentic. And I think a lot of the people coming to see that show, they knew the show, they knew the songs. So when you get to the songs, you know what they're saying, even though you don't understand the words. And there's something very powerful in that. And I think that the spareness of the set of the physical production kind of helped elevate all of that. It, it, it goes back to that thing I was saying about an actor saying words to an audience, an actor conveying a story to an audience. And we stripped it back to its very bare essentials, which, which made it more powerful in a way. I think some of that also is um, because people know Fiddler on the Roof so well, it, it has become a little bit kind of schmaltzy and saccharine and, and you're sort of used to the way Topol or Zero Mustel before him had all the, all the shtick and all of the kind of vaudeville jokes that happen in the course of it. But, you know, they're funny and they're good theater, but they're a little schlocky. Um, and this sort of making the production more spare and more kind of harsh peeled away some of that schlockiness. And I think that's part of what also made it feel more powerful in an interesting way. It, it's something you can only do when the show is that well known. It's something, I could do it with Hamlet, but I couldn't do it with, with a new play because you need the frame of reference. You need to know what the story is. You need to kind of know what's happening to then be able to comment it on it in the ways that we were doing or, or strip it down in the way we, ways we were doing. Um, something similar happened with the production of Oklahoma that happened a, a year or two ago um, around the same time that they did a very, very simple version. And because people knew the story well, and again, because that's a musical that's done so often, it's gotten kind of, sentimental and schlocky, stripping it all away kind of helped you see the story underneath it better. And, and that can be exciting. Um, and sometimes it doesn't work. It, you know, I've seen productions also where it's just awful and it feels like you're destroying the show by doing that. Um, and, and so it, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But that was my experience on Fiddler and, and a lot of people came to see it and seemed to have that same experience. Another show you did that was very, very different from Fiddler, but still sort of a bare set was Freestyle Love Supreme. And in that show, it must have been interesting because in most shows, this job of the set is to sort of take you into the world of the play. But that show was very sort of interactive. So it was almost taking us, like not putting up a fourth wall. Yeah, yeah. It, again, it, you know, Freestyle is a very different show. It's the only thing I've ever done like that where we were, it's an improv show. It's different literally every night. There's, there's kind of a structure in that they have kind of games that they play and what those games are, are consistent night to night. But what they make up and what the words are and what the stories end up being is completely different every day. And the cast changes constantly. So whether it's, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda doing it or Chris Jackson doing it or Anthony Banzalia doing it, it, whoever is sort of doing it will also change what the story is for that night. Um, and so interestingly, that does not allow me to do the thing that I, I'm basically interested in doing with set design. I can't grab the theme and the story because there isn't one. Um, but what is consistent every night is that there's, there's an energy to those guys. They're all freestyle rappers and there's going to be a, an energy and kind of a driving beat to the show every night. Um, and so the set needs to be something that will, similar to the new one, that will not get in the way, that will make those individual people feel prominent um, and can sort of help with making the, the stories that they're making up exciting and, and driving and interesting every night. And 
So one of the things we did, we'd done a show downtown off Broadway. Actually, I did it about uh, 15 years ago. I did it originally at Ars Nova um, before anyone knew who Tommy Kale or Lynn Miranda were. Um, but before we did it on Broadway, we'd done an off-Broadway production at the Greenwich House. And the set was completely different. Um, when we were down there, it was a theater that had some big arched windows on the side that had been painted over. And so I just copied that. I put a big arched window on stage and we put lights inside it so that our lighting designer, Jeff Kreuter, could make it change different colors and make it kind of flash and chase and, and make it just kind of exciting and, and transformative, really. It, it was a thing that transformed into different colors and different feelings and different rhythms through the course of the show. And that's what the performers are doing too. So the physical production was trying to kind of mirror what they were doing and support what they were doing um, by being flexible and, and, and sort of, in its way, non-specific, so that it, it didn't feel like it was saying one thing when when their story was saying a different thing. Um, when we got to Broadway, although the set looked completely different, it kind of came from the same place. I looked at what the walls of the Booth Theater were, and there were this sort of this old paneling, and I thought, well, what if we just build a room on stage that is the exact same details of, of all this paneling, and it just kind of continues what's around the audience onto the stage. Um, and, and then I used forced perspective, which is where you, you take something and you sort of, when you look into the distance, things seem to get smaller. On stage, often we'll use forced perspective and we put a big thing downstage and a small thing upstage to make it feel like the distance is greater than it really is. And I did the same thing on that set. It just, it, it, it angled down very steeply and it got smaller as it went upstage. So that the, the kind of the back wall right behind the actors wasn't very big. It was only about 10 feet tall and 15 feet wide. And so it makes a person feel very prominent in front of that. And it took the, the architecture of the theater and shrank it down to that shape um, in a way that would make a human being feel bigger. And then the last thing I did is we, the walls of the theater are wood. On stage, I built them all out of glass, out of plexiglass. Um, and then we painted them so they looked like wood, but so you could light them from behind and make them glow. And it made it kind of very transformative and sort of magic. And I, I don't know if most of the audience even knew what we were doing, but it allowed the set to turn any color we wanted it to turn and to kind of pulse and, and, and rhythmically change through the course of the show. And again, that was Jeff Kreuter, the lighting designer, doing that. And, you know, a lot of shows change color. I don't know that the audience was really aware of what we had done, but because we built it out of glass, it was, it was able to be backlit to do that in a way that was pretty unique. And it's not something I've ever done on stage before. So a show on which you faced sort of the opposite challenge was Prince of Broadway because you had to do a lot of different sets and often to sort of recreate very famous ones. So how did you manage to do all of that while still staying within budget? And um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, the, on Prince of Broadway, it's, I was not the original designer on that show. They had started doing the show with a different designer and he couldn't seem to solve the set and they fired him and, and asked me to come do it because I'd worked with both Hal and Stroman before. And so they asked me to join them. And I, I read the script and it actually is because I had worked with Hal and knew his aesthetic that I was able to figure out that I said before that he thinks of everything as kind of a black box. He describes Phantom of the Opera as a black box show. And that sounds crazy because there's a lot of scenery there. But if you look at it carefully, you realize that even though there's big, elaborate scenery in that show, it is usually kind of within a black box. Even that, that massive staircase for the party scene with all the party goers up and down it, that's all it is. It's just a big staircase. Behind it is blackness. Um, 
And that's how HAL works, is, is a couple of things kind of set in darkness. And it's, it's a very theatrical way of, of doing shows. And so very quickly, I said to them on Prince of Broadway, I think our set should be an empty theater. We should do an empty theater. We should make it very dark, so it's almost a black box. And then into that, we can put an object that represents each of these shows. Um, and, you know, as, as it developed, sometimes we did a whole set. When we did Follies, I actually just completely copied Boris Aronson's Loveland set, and we recreated it for a minute. But often, we would just do a little slice of a set, and we would stick it within this black box and let that be the thing that kind of reminded you of what the original production was. So, you know, some people had seen the original production, some people hadn't. Um, but I was always quoting, almost always quoting a piece of the original designer's work, or, or maybe all of it. Um, and presenting that on stage. But because often it was just a little piece of it, some of those sets weren't very big, and so they, they didn't cost that much, actually. Um, it's <clears throat> the other thing I think that allowed us to afford it is we did it in Tokyo. The first production was in Japan, and I just had a wonderful shop building it for me who was very devoted to the project. And I think he, he found ways to do things less expensively than we would do them in the United States. Or, or maybe he paid for it himself. I'm not quite sure how it happened because I got a lot of scenery for not a lot of money. And then we just brought it back to Broadway and, and did it here with, with the Japanese scenery. So one thing you were talking about is making sure that set changes don't encumber the actors. And a time when a lot of that sort of figuring out happens is tech rehearsal. What have been some of the most sort of grueling techs that you've had to go through? Oh, man. Um, you know, interestingly, and this is important, I think, for set design, is you put it all together with the actors in tech rehearsal. But in reality, I have to figure it all out before rehearsals even start, because you have to build the set. And once it's built, it's going to work however it works. You can make little changes. And if you're willing to spend a lot of money, maybe you can make bigger changes. But basically, you have to make a decision on what the set is and how it's going to move and how it's going to work before the director even walks into the rehearsal room. Um, and so the designer and the director have to be able to think it all through in theory carefully enough that when it all ends up on stage and it is, you know, a million dollars of scenery sitting there and you're in a Broadway theater that's very expensive, all of it works pretty well the first time without, you know, without problems. And, you know, there's always problems. There's, you always run into something you didn't expect would happen or even if everything works out exactly the way you planned it, sometimes you get on stage and it just doesn't feel right. Like you, it, everything you wanted it to be but it doesn't feel like it's the right thing for the scene and you have to change it. Um, and that, that you do, that does happen in tech rehearsals and in previews. Um, but hopefully I've designed the set well enough that most of it works well. Um, one of the most, I think, difficult experiences I had like that was actually on an off-Broadway show. It was a, a play called If There Is, I Haven't Found It Yet that Jake Gyllenhaal starred in. And it was mostly a very simple set. It was a big kind of blue box on stage with a bunch of furniture in it. And the actors just pulled out whatever furniture they needed for whatever scene. But in the course of the play, as they pulled out more and more furniture, it revealed a bathtub in the middle of the stage. And two thirds of the way through the show, uh, one of the main characters, a character played by Annie Funky, gets in the bathtub and tries to kill herself by slitting her wrists. So she, you see that, you see her get in the tub or slit her wrists, and the bathtub starts to overflow with water. And the whole set was rigged so that we were pumping water out through the bathtub, but also under the walls of the set, there was a little gap. And in about 30 seconds, we dumped 40,000 gallons of water onto the set. And so suddenly it went from the space that had been a blue box to suddenly there was about eight, eight inches or a foot of water in it. 
Um, and, and all the furniture is kind of floating around in it and, and so on. And it, the character doesn't, doesn't actually die in the suicide attempt. They try to save her and the rest of the play played out with them kind of sloshing through the water after this crisis has occurred where she tried to kill herself. Um, but water is difficult on stage. Um, it's very heavy. And if there is the tiniest little hole anywhere, it will leak out of the set. Um, and we found that's what happened on this show. Uh, because we were dumping all this water onto the stage really fast, that 40,000 gallons of water not only filled up the whole stage, but it also rushed to the front of the stage and we had a kind of a plexiglass wall to contain it so it didn't spill out into the audience. And it hit that wall and the wall like burst. It didn't break, but it like burst like in a cartoon, all these like little spigots of water started spurting through it. Um, and we, we had talked to engineers, we built the wall, you know, based on the, on the engineering requirements we were told we had to use for this much water, but it didn't work. It started leaking. Um, and it built, went out into the audience and it made the floor wet and it leaked into the theater underneath us and it dripped on them every night. Um, and, you know, we went in the next day and we, we caulked all of the leaks and we tried it again and the same thing happened again. And we put some extra bracing in to keep the wall from moving. We kept having the problem over and over and over again. And this went on for about 10 days while we were in previews with audiences coming to see it. We had, we had like towels along the front row. So then as the water leaked out, it didn't get people wet. Um, and we sealed it up enough and braced it enough that you didn't have like the cartoon waterfalls coming through it anymore, but it still leaked and the water was getting out. Um, and finally, uh, we brought in a guy who wasn't a theatrical engineer. We brought in a guy who did aquariums. And he walked in and he looked at it and he said, your plexiglass isn't thick enough. You used half inch plexiglass. You need to use one inch thick plexiglass for this. And we pulled it all out, we replaced it, we resealed it, and it was fine ever after. So it was, it was as simple as that. And what it turned out is the, the engineers that we used originally, they had told us how much, how thick the plexiglass and how thick the steel had to be to hold 40,000 gallons of water, but they forgot that it was gonna be 40,000 gallons of water moving towards it, so it hit it like a wave. And so the weight and the force was, was a lot more than that. And when that force hit it every night, it broke it until we got a heavier duty wall in there that solved the problem. But for a designer, having to sit through previews where every night you know your set is gonna break and start spilling water into the audience is pretty nerve wracking and not much fun. So after you finish work on a show, how much do you usually save in terms of models, papers? Um, you know, the more I do this, the less I save, unfortunately. I love building models and I, I, they're great fun um, and, and they can be very beautiful. Um, it's, it's one of the things I really love about this job is getting to make them. But I've designed 450 shows at this point and I live in Manhattan where space is a premium, so I haven't saved 450 sets. Um, it's, you know, I, the ones that are really the most special to me, I do save. Um, and I, I'm in a, a temporary studio right now, so I don't have them here, but I usually have a few of my favorite sets hanging on the wall, the Scottsboro Boys and Spelling Bee and, and those kind of shows. Um, but most of them I end up taking apart and, you know, I, the furniture and the little people in them and all that stuff I can use on a different set. So I have boxes and boxes full of, you know, pieces of old sets that I can recycle and reuse with new ideas. Um, and then some of them I take, there's actually a wonderful website uh, called the Broadway Design Exchange that uh, another set designer, Anna Luisa, has put together. And they sell old set models, basically. And you can buy uh, old designs from all sorts of designers. And a lot of my models I sell there because I love them and I, I don't want to throw them away and I don't want to break them. 
And if somebody wants to buy them and will love them, then I'm, that's what I would like to have happen with them. And it's, it's very gratifying. And I, I don't sell them for a lot of money. I, you know, if, if somebody wants it and will love it, then I'm quite happy for them to have it. So most of them don't cost very much. Um, but it, it's a nice way of, of having, having them go somewhere where they, they'll be cared for. So as you were saying, you've done 450 sets, which is a lot. And some of those have been at the same theaters. Do you have a favorite Broadway or off-Broadway theater to design in? Yeah, I think the Vivian Beaumont at Lincoln Center is my favorite Broadway theater. Um, part of it is that it's, it's a little different from most of the Broadway theaters, and it's bigger, which gives me a little more ability to do some things. But um, I really like thrust stages. Uh, proscenium stages are fun. Um, but there's something magic to me about a thrust stage where an actor can get a little closer to the audience. And in a weird way, I can do less scenery. I can just put the scenery behind them instead of having to wrap around them quite as much. Um, but also what happens at Lincoln Center is because they have a, a massive backstage, it gives me more freedom and flexibility to try some kind of big things. It's what allowed act one to be the giant turntable that it was. And, and you're one of the few people who's seen some of Flying Over Sunset. It's what allows the Flying Over Sunset set to be what it is. I couldn't do that in, in any other theater in New York. Um, so that, I really love that space. Um, you know, the other one I've discovered I love, I think similarly, is the Delacorte in Central Park, where Shakespeare in the Park happens. I worked there for the first time last summer, and it's also a thrust stage. Um, and the, the magic of doing a stage kind of out in Central Park in the middle of New York City and doing a Shakespeare play there is, is extraordinary, and I fell in love with that as well. Um, again, some of it is the novelty of it. It's, you know, I love doing Shakespeare plays, but getting to do it in the middle of Central Park is unique and exciting. So one sort of recurring theme without your career is you've done a lot of transfers, either from an off-Broadway theater to a Broadway theater or off-Broadway to another off-Broadway theater. Other than obviously having to change the scope and the size of the set to fit the theater, what do you think are some of the shows you've done the most drastic work on during transfers? Oh, that's interesting. Um, usually it is really just about sort of trying to change the, the, the physical size of the set to fit a different theater. You know, when you go from off-Broadway to Broadway, sometimes there's a pressure to add some bells and whistles. It's Broadway and it's more expensive and it's supposed to be flashier. And we usually do a little bit of that. Um, Sometimes you do a lot of that, but usually not. Usually if the show is successful off-Broadway, there's something about that that you want to maintain. and You don't want to start, you know, throwing all sorts of special effects at it. Um, but, you know, also usually off-Broadway, there was something you wanted to do that you couldn't afford to do. And so you, on Broadway, you, you're able to try the bigger, fancier version that, that maybe does show that idea. Um, Be More Chill certainly got more involved when it went to Broadway. And, and maybe that wasn't a good idea. You know, we, most of what we did on Broadway were ideas we had for off-Broadway and just couldn't afford to do. But it made the show more expensive to run. It made it more expensive to put it up. It made it more expensive to run the show. And that's part of why it wasn't successful on Broadway. It's not, um, it's not a show that adults seem to love, but it is a, a show that, that young adults and kids seem to love but they don't necessarily have $200 to go buy a lot of show tickets. And um, I think that's part of why the show was not successful on Broadway. Uh, we, we have since figured out a version that's very simple, that's even simpler than the off-Broadway version. And we mounted it in London last year until the pandemic closed us down. And we were just getting ready to put it up in Chicago. 
Um, and it seems to be financially a more viable model of the show. Um, so that's, that's part of it is figuring out, you know, economically, what production can I do that, that the audience who wants to see this show can sustain? Um, it's, it's not a coincidence that a lot of the more successful shows of recent years have had fairly simple sets. Come From Away has a very simple set. Hamilton has a very simple set. Um, they don't cost, those sets don't cost a lot. And more importantly, they don't cost a lot every week because you don't need 10,000 stagehands to make them work. Um, and it's part of why those shows have been financially successful. Um, so that, those are all the things that you think about when you're doing a, a Broadway show. Um, I'm trying to think if I've ever, you know, I, mean, I told you a little bit about Freestyle Love Supreme, which changed, what the set was changed dramatically from off-Broadway to Broadway, but it still was not a fancy expensive set. It was just different to try to react differently to the room that it was playing in. So one thing you do in every set is you hide a little elephant. So what have been some of the memorable places that you've hid them? That is a good question. You know, I think maybe the funniest place I ever hid one, it, often it's a little, it's a little, you know, sculpture of an elephant that I can put on a desk amongst whatever, um, you know, so, and, and if it's too obvious, then I move it. My point, my point is I don't want the audience to notice it necessarily, but those who know it's there can look for it and find it. Um, sometimes I will paint them into a backdrop. And I did a ballet at New York City Ballet of the Seven Deadly Sins. And the final scene was they've, they've been out journeying through the world and they come back to this big mansion. And the mansion was a big backdrop with big light up windows in it. And I put an elephant into one of those windows. And on the, in the model, it was tiny. You couldn't even see it, it was so little. Um, but once we made this giant backdrop to fit at the New York State Theater, you know, the, it was 60 feet wide and suddenly the elephant was about this, it was, you know, probably four or five inches wide and you could definitely see it from every seat in the house. And it was, I don't know that people noticed it or were distracted by it. I think they just thought, oh, why is there an elephant in that window? But the choreographer, Lynn Taylor Corbett, came up to me and she was like, why, why do they have an elephant? And I had to explain the whole thing to her and she thought it was funny and it was fine. But that was a case where if she hadn't liked it, I couldn't get rid of it. It was painted into the drop and it was a drop that was lit by lights from the back so I couldn't easily change it. Um, and uh, if it had been a problem, I wouldn't have been able to move it. So that was a little memorable. And I think more often I try to hide a little physical elephant so that if, um, if, if for some reason it's distracting or it feels weird, I can just get rid of it because it, it's a fun detail, but I don't want it to get in the way of how we're telling the story. So you obviously very much have the artistic impulse and the set design impulse. Do you ever find yourself sort of designing your apartment as if it was a set? <laughs> I, um, you know, it's hard to say. I was going to say no. I used to very, very specifically not try to design it as a set. Um, what I do try to do in my apartment design is I try to do something that's very kind of classic and not get too caught up in current trends um, because I study design history and you know, the thing that is very fashionable and feels very elegant today is going to feel very outdated in about five years. Um, and, you know, it's, the joke is you don't want an avocado fridge or you don't want whatever. Um, and what's interesting to me is the right now, mid-century modern is still kind of very much the design vogue. And all of my younger assistants love it and think it's the most elegant thing ever. Um, but because I'm a little bit older, um, I wasn't alive in the 50s when that stuff was was originally developed, the, the mid-century furniture and that design style. But when I was a little kid in the 70s, it was kind of the, the old 
cliched stuff that nobody liked anymore. So every doctor's office I went to was full of mid-century modern, modern furniture because it was the junk people were getting rid of. And it was the secondhand sofa that you put in the doctor's office knowing it was going to get destroyed. And so all of this stuff that feels so elegant to people now just reminds me of an old doctor's office with a falling apart sofa, and I don't like it. Um, and whatever is kind of the most current thing now, you know, in five or six years, like any fashion, it will start to feel cliched and frumpy and, and ugly. Um, and, you know, and then when some more time goes by, then it starts to feel classic in, in the way that mid-century -century modern, you know, is a 1950s style that feels of the moment now. Um, and Art Deco, the sort of movement before that, feels very classic now. You look at New York skyscrapers like the Empire State Building or the Chrysler Building, and they feel so elegant and beautiful. But I think those also went through a period where they were, they seemed old fashioned and kind of clumsy to people. Um, you know, Penn Station was this famous old building that was torn down because people thought it was old fashioned and ugly. And now we look back on it and think, well, how could we have done that? It was this gorgeous, beautiful building um, and it's gone. Um, but design goes through those kind of cycles. And I think in my apartment, as much as I can, I try to do kind of classic design that, that kind of predates the, the trends. Um, you know, there's still trendy stuff that I do. You can't avoid it. We're all affected by the, by the mood and the look of things around us. Um, but I try to be aware of it. And I, and I do try not to get the thing that's gonna suddenly feel like the avocado refrigerator or the 70s shag rug. So I'd like to ask you about one more specific show you did, which was Rock of Ages, which you did on Broadway, and then you returned to several years later to do at New World Stages. What was it like sort of coming back to that set? Um, it was an interesting one because it, it's not the kind of show I do mostly. I, I've often said if I hadn't been asked to design Rock of Ages, I probably never would have gone to see it. Um, but it's a show that I fell in love with because both because of the... the the people I did it with were really just a lovely group of people. The director and the choreographer and the lighting designer all became very, very good friends um, and, and really lovely people who I've stayed close with over the years. Um, and, and it was a good show for what it was. You have to judge every show kind of on its own terms. And Rock of Ages is intentionally stupid. It's making stupid jokes. It's, it's very tongue in cheek. Um, the whole show is like that. And if you accept it on those terms, it is funny and, and it's told well. And, um, and in the end, it's kind of touching actually. Part of the reason the show is successful is even though it's kind of a cliche story and you know that those two characters end up together by the end, um, you, uh, it's still touching when it happens, um, even though it's not surprising and it's you know, five minutes in, you know how the story's gonna end. So for all those reasons, I, I found I liked Rock of, Rock of Ages. I've always enjoyed watching it. I've done it, we did it many, many times. We did it on Broadway, we did it in London. We did it in Australia, we did a national tour. We did a Las Vegas production. I, did, I, I spent years doing that show over and over again. And because the show was kind of fun and the people were fun, I always enjoyed it. Um, even though it's not, you know, a slightly more intellectual kind of theater is, is what I really enjoy. Um, and so getting to do it again off-Broadway was fun for the same reasons. Um, it was the same people coming back together again. It was literally the same set we had designed for off-Broadway 10 years ago. And we took that set and we put it in a Broadway theater and we put it in a different Broadway theater and then we put it back in a different off-Broadway theater. And we just kept chopping it up and putting it back together in different ways to make it fit. Um, and because it's supposed to be an old, you know, beat up rock club, it was actually okay just to kind of keep chopping it apart and sticking it back together again. It just, it just made it look more beaten up. Um, and it worked well for that show. Um, but it, 
other shows would not do that so well. Um, you know, a show that's a sleeker design, like Be More Chill, is harder to chop up and put back together in different spaces because part of the, the aesthetic is the simple clean lines of it. Um, and with a kind of a, a messy, dirty, knocked apart thing like Rock of Ages, it's much easier to, to sort of keep re recreating it in different spaces. So tell us about the set you just designed and about what the future of set designing might look like. Um, wow. <laughs> the set I just designed is, uh, is Flying Over Sunset. That's the last thing I've designed. Um, it, that show closed at its first preview because of the pandemic. Um, and the set is still sitting at Lincoln Center. And hopefully the future of my set design is, you know, when we get past this next year or the year after that, whenever, whenever the world is safe again to go to the theater, I hope I'll go back and do that show as the first thing I do. Um, uh, and honestly, because we don't know what the future of theater is, I haven't been doing any set design. I have been messing with a little bit. There's some projects I'm working on that, you know, will happen someday. And I've been talking to directors about those, but, um, you know, it's pretty abstract. We don't know when we're doing them. We don't know what theater it is. So we're, we're taking kind of the initial steps. Um, you know, if, if we don't solve the pandemic and it's not safe to sit next to each other in a theater, if we don't ever solve it, then I guess theater will change and we'll do it in a different way. But I think for the moment, everyone's assuming we are going to solve that. And you'll be able to go back in a Broadway theater and sit safely next to somebody and not be worried you're gonna die. Um, the, the economics of Broadway are such, it is so expensive to do shows there that I don't think there's a socially distanced way of doing Broadway shows. Maybe there is, maybe if you do a one man show with a movie star that people really wanna come see, you know, then you can sell 5% of the seats and still make money. But there's not gonna be any production with that. Um, and beyond that, I, I don't really know that there's a way to make it work. Um, but, you know, that's for the scientists to figure out. I, I don't know how to solve that part of it. Um, I think if and when theater comes back, you know, it's gonna, until people feel comfortable coming back into a theater again, maybe producers will wanna spend a little less money and so we'll have a little less, little less money to do shows. I, I don't know, but I think if people do feel comfortable going back, then they're gonna come back in droves. Um, people are, are so hungry for, for human contact and uh, you know, being able to see people alive and in front of them performing I think they're going to be so sick of watching movies on Netflix that, you know, live theater, I think once it's safe, we'll do just fine. That, that's my prediction. Um, and I hope I'm right about that. I obviously don't know. Um, but in the meantime, we're just kind of waiting and seeing. You know, you're beginning to see some musicals appearing on Netflix. Um, Hamilton had been recorded anyway, so they were able to put that up on Disney. I just read that Diana is doing something like that. And there's other shows talking about it. I, I, without being specific, I've had that conversation with a couple of producers. Um, and so maybe those will happen, I don't know. But it's, that's not live theater. That is, you know, it's not bad and it's a way to tell a story, but it's not the same thing as live theater. Um, so I, you know, I hope that's a short-term solution and that ultimately we're, we're back in theaters doing real plays for real people. So now I'd like to ask you to tell us a little bit more about the book you're working on that you mentioned earlier. I've been it for, for quite a few years now. I started in maybe 2015 or 2016. It, it's a book about set design and sort of my philosophy of, of set design. But um, because I don't, I'm not, I'm not good with philosophy. I, I like stories. Um, 
what the book is, is the story of how I designed the set for Act One and the story of how I designed the set for Scottsboro Boys. Um, and it includes, you know, how I met James Lapine and how I met Susan Stroman and how I met Hal Prince, how I met these people and how, how we designed the sets together for various shows. Um, and so I have a, a narrative, a chapter at a time, sort of talking about six shows that were important to me and sort of six different shows. So I talk about different approaches to design. And then I interview a bunch of these directors um, and talk about their approach to design, both how, how they worked with me on shows that they did, but also because they're all quite famous directors, how they, how they did, how they approached the design to some of the famous shows they did. I talked to Hal Prince about Follies and about Company and how he worked with Boris Aronson. Um, and I talked to Susan Stroman about how she worked with Robin Wagner on Crazy For You and to James Lapine about how he worked with Tony Stragas on the original Sunday in the Park with George. Um, I talked to Jerry Zachs about how he worked with Tony Walton on, uh, on the famous revival of Guys and Dolls and Six Degrees of Separation and Lend Me a Tenor. Um, I talked to Kenny Leon about working with August Wilson on, on Fences and uh, uh, Radio Golf and some of those famous plays. Um, so it, I think as we've talked, I've talked a lot about directors and how that, that relationship is so important to me in figuring out what a set is going to be. And if that relationship is good, the set will be more interesting than what I could come up with on my own and more interesting than what the director could come up with on their own. That's, that's collaboration is the two of us working together and, and creating something that neither of us could make on our own. Um, and it's, it's really the important relationship in theater to me, the exciting one. Um, and so that's what the book is trying to talk about is, is how I as a designer work with directors and how those directors work with other designers to, to create what a set is on stage. And, and they're all very different directors. Um, and, and so their approaches are, are quite different. Um, and because of all of that, I also ended up interviewing Stephen Sondheim about it um, because he was, so, he was so integral to both James and Hal Prince's careers. Um, but he also worked with Jerry Zachs and Susan Stroman. Um, so I, I interviewed him a little bit as well about how as a writer he thinks about design. Um, and Steve is not, He's not someone who thinks visually all that much, but it was amazing how much he did think about it. It was, it was quite an illuminating conversation. Um, uh, so that, that's what the book is, and hopefully someday it will exist. Um, it's the, the one um, good side of the pandemic and not being able to do real theater is I've had a lot of time to focus on it. And so I'm actually kind of whipping it into shape. I'd been working on it for, as I said, about five years before this. And in the last three months, I've gotten a lot more done than I did in the five years before that. Um, and so, you know, maybe in a few more months, I'll actually have a book out of it. That sounds like a good idea, and I'll be looking forward to reading it. Thanks. Thanks. So thank you so much for doing this interview today. It's my pleasure. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Reminder to tune in again on Monday when we're joined by Tony nominee and Cats actor Stephen Mohem. Thank you again for listening.